So I have so far 22 picks of steaks this year. Gosh, they're <laughs> like chickens for you. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode seven of Let's Talk Turtles. Today, Tom and I are joined by none other than Mr. Ralph Till. So if you wanted to get to know this fella uh, and learn a little bit more about Egyptian tortoises, then stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy. All right, welcome, everybody. We're here again. This is I'm Ryan, and I'm here with Tom Arbor and Ralph Till today. Um, so buckle up. It's going to be... Uh, a fun chat about turtles and tortoises today, especially about uh, Egyptian tortoises. But uh, guys, how are you today? Doing excellent. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I'm really excited. I It's a long week. I know I work at a zoo, so I, I'm kind of around um, reptiles all the time. But I don't get a whole lot of opportunities to talk just about turtles and tortoises. So I am just super amped to spend some time just talking Colonian. So I'm excited. Me too. Right. It's, it's great to have you here, Ralph. Uh, well, of course, I didn't meet you, Ryan. This is the first time ever for me. Uh, I know Tom. Uh, uh, Tom has been here to my house, uh, got to show off my stuff. And then I've also run into Tom at the TTPG conferences. Um, I'm, a, I'm a real proactive member of that. I'm a lifetime member of the TTPG. I think my first meeting was. Uh, maybe 2015, 2014, 15, I'm not sure. And um, I've actually presented twice there and I had an article uh, published in the Bataker one year, uh, all on Egyptian stuff, of course. It's kind of been my my forte. Yeah, when I read your name, I, I think Egyptian tortoises. Um, I think a lot of people do. How did you start getting into them how did ralph till and egyptian tortoises start coming together and becoming synonymous <laughs> well uh, a little quick history i've been i've been involved with turtles primarily turtles i grew up in northwestern new jersey out in farm country in new jersey all right and it was you know there's rivers and streams and bogs and whatever so like any kid I spent my summers crawling around through them and, you know, found every little creature I could find. And then, uh, and then ultimately I moved down here and I kind of got away from it for a while just because of life, you know, and then, then I, I got myself reintroduced to, to tortoises specifically, maybe 25 years ago. And I was always enamored with the little little tortoises, you know, like little turtles. I love spotted turtles and bog turtles. That's what I had in New Jersey, painted turtles. And they're relatively small. Um, so uh, the red foot, the sulcata, the, the, they really didn't do anything for me. They were just big tortoises that ate a lot. Uh, and everybody had them. So uh, whenever I get involved with something, my... My makeup is I have to do, it has to have a purpose. I, I don't, you know, just to say I have 35 redfoots in the backyard means nothing to me um, because anybody can do that. I need to do something that has a purpose. And that's when this whole Egyptian thing 
kind of came to light. I realized just by reading about them, because there were none available, you couldn't find them anywhere. Um, I realized their plight. I mean, even 20 years ago, they were they were uh, in serious trouble in their natural habitat. And there were very, very limited amounts of them in this country. Um, sadly, they were wild caught. I mean, it's it's part of it, whether we like it or not. Uh, that's the reality. But then they stopped. They stopped all that. And so the only specimens that were available were those that were F1 of these um, these these founder animals. And I just I kind of made it my mission. I needed to get a couple of these and start working with Egyptian tortoises. I just became enamored with them. I, I don't have a office just because they're small, because they were cute, because they were rare. Uh, they were not cheap. Even back then, they were not cheap. Uh, but I managed to acquire a couple and uh, hatchlings, and and it just kind of took off from there. I just became fascinated with these little guys. And then I made it a mission to learn everything I could about them. And that's been 15 years. So this overnight success thing that people talk about only took me 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of overnight for a tortoise maybe yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh you know so here i am today now you know with a with i don't even know how i really did it to be honest but i have probably one of the premier breeding colonies of these guys in the united states and and what i tried to do is create as much diversity genetic uh, genetically as I possibly could. And that was a challenge. Uh, it was a challenge because there were so few people that had founder animals that all the offspring were related. So it's still a challenge to this day, but, um, but I've been able to create five different bloodlines here. That's pretty outstanding. I think so. I don't think there's many turtle or tortoise species where you can trace many bloodlines to. I know Knixis, uh Jeremy and Tom do a great, and David do a great job with that, but I don't think there's many that that happens with. And um, it's one of those things that uh, I think separates the real players from, from the game. I don't know if that's a good analogy or not, but uh, that's pretty incredible. I guess it's my shorthand. <laughs> <laughs> Just... You know, it's it's easy to breed and, uh, you know, brothers and sisters and and all that together. And maybe it happens in the wild. I don't really know. Um, but I felt if I had an option to 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 pursue it, what I felt was was the right way. Um, that's the direction that I'm willing to go. And And it has worked for me. You know, that's the key. Well, you're doing your part to make sure that, at least in the private sector, that we're preserving the species long term. Um, there is a time and and there's a time where you may need to breed siblings or closely related animals, but that time doesn't have to be right now. Um, so you're really paying it forward to a lot of people who are going to want to manage some um, Kleinmanai or some Egyptian tortoises uh, at home in the future. And I love the long view. A lot of turtle, turtle people have usually a much longer view 
uh, of what their goals are. So that's incredibly helpful. Did yeah, you know, it's, uh, and it's it's very, very gratifying. Um, it can be frustrating at the same time because, uh, I mean, I, I don't, some of the people that I deal with are, are uh, I don't want to throw stones, but, you know, they're, 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 they're more interested in the financial part of it, you know, and it creates, it creates some problems at times. Um, but that's okay. You know, I guess that's a good problem to have. Maybe, I don't know. Ralph has, has that problem exacerbated in the past six months to a year, as we've seen these prices go sky high on Egyptians. As soon as they put out the potential listing of ESA, the, several individuals tried to cash in on that, and and in and yeah, I mean it, it, the prices just quadrupled. I mean they've never been cheap, but but some of the prices just went out of sight, and um, and they even advertised that you know. Uh, I saw some some I don't want to mention any names because I'll get sued, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, the Egyptian tortoise is going ESA in October of 2022. Buy it now. And I, and people do, you know. Without doing any same. kind of research. So the same thing with pancake tortoises. Yeah, probably. Same yeah. thing. People are like, ah, oh, watch out um, for people at home just for a little bit of uh, context what's the average um cost of acquiring egyptian tortoise and and how much did that go up when you saw people trying to take advantage of like the uh, the esa rulings uh the pricing was kind of hovering around anywhere from 750 to a thousand dollars for a hatchling okay uh, different people ask different things, and that's okay. But everybody was kind of within that range. I say everybody. I mean, there's only four or five other major players out there. And then uh, all of a sudden, it jumped up to three grand. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. And and then what happened is um, <laughs> I heard Anthony talk about this. <laughs> Anthony Pierleone, he's a he's a huge he's a good friend of mine, so I can say these things. Um, he calls me the the soup Nazi, you know, kind of a guy. Uh, I get I get people that want to buy a couple of hatchlings. Now I don't know them from Adam, and they 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 give me this big speech about they've been working with whatever for years and years, and and so I I sell them a couple of hatchlings. I said, okay, here you know, let's make a deal. And a month later, they show up on on Morph Market for you know three grand each. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, what the hell's going on here? You know, I'm, I'm well, you know, and they give you the story that the well, life changed, or there's always come some story, you know, that the refrigerator blew up or something like that. Well, you know, sell your motorcycle or something, you know, don't sell the little hatchings that I sold you. I mean, I can't stop it. I can't do anything yeah. legally about it, you know, but it, 
it, it's, it's just frustrating. And so therefore I just, I don't sell to anybody. I just, I give some of them away. Hell with them. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great reason to be a soup Nazi. You, know, you, you, <laughs> you can meet some great people and they can give you, I mean, you can only do so much to vet who you're going to send animals to, especially animals where there's not many, um, so you just do what you can and sometimes it's you're happy about it and sometimes you're less happy about it but. yeah you know and um i take it i take it personally i mean i was just kind of looking around here today and i think gosh you know i have uh, you know i always question uv lighting and and how uh, everybody always said you change the bulb every six months or you change them every year well, I couldn't be sure, so I bought one of those uh, UV meters, you know, a couple of hundred bucks. Uh, temperature gun, you buy one of those. Um, I have a very good rapport with a vet who is trained in exotics. I mean, uh, she did her internship with Douglas Mater. You know who Douglas Mater is? Very right. much. So He wrote so, the book. Yeah. And, and that's who she did her internship with. So when I heard that, I said, this is the person I need. And, and she comes here once every six months. And I just step back and say, you know, do your thing. You tell me. That's, and I say this because that's the kind of the thought I put into this stuff here. And then I expect other people to do the same. Maybe it's unrealistic, but what the hell, if I can do it. I don't have any special training or anything, you know. Set the example. See if someone follows. That's all you can do, right? Yeah, yeah. And answer questions. I love it. You know, call me up and say, "Hey, you know, what's something? What should I do? Should I be realistic with your question? Don't ask me, but you know, if it drinks water three times a day or something. I mean, come on, <laughs> cut me a break." But uh... <laughs> I realized you. Uh, we'll get a, into a little more husbandry, but do you give? water available to your egyptians at all times or they always have a dish of water available now do they drink out of it rarely rarely i have a couple of males that once in a while i'll walk by and i'll see a head down inside the water dish uh they will walk through the water dish and crap in it but uh you know they'll, <laughs> cool. they'll track food into it they'll you know, it turns into a swamp by the end of the day, but, but that's what they do. So, but yeah, I always have a water dish. It's a little one. It's not a great big thing, but, but nonetheless. Good. I try to give everything that as well at work. We have some uh, star tortoises that we actually, we soak them once a week, give them like a little uh -huh. 10, 20 minute soak, but we don't offer water at all. And they seem to thrive and it's, it's always worked for us, but uh, you always have a little feeling of like, man, I don't know. Like, they shouldn't they always have something? That's why I watched one of Tom's videos, and I saw he had uh, one of those chick drinkers. And I've yeah, totally yeah. stolen that, and I've, I've put it almost into everything. And yeah. um, it's even though they still find a way to oh, drop yeah. a BM in there. Yep. Uh, <laughs> which is amazing, considering how much space is actually there to actually make that happen. They still do it, but it's less frequent than a pan of water. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've tried going without the water, and and uh, I mean, I spray the enclosures every morning. Um, I mean, I don't hose them down, but I mist them a bit. 
and the and the salad, you know, I'll spray it a little bit. So I'm certain that the animals have plenty of water. And then I also soak them, maybe the adults about once every two weeks is all. Um, and I don't ever seem to have any hydration issues, but it's it's just as easy to keep this little bowl of water in there. And then I have a routine where once a week I got to take them all out and wash them all out. And it's it's easy once it yeah once you get it down. The other thing I have to be careful of is um, uh, I don't want to get into to laws, but uh, I have a class three permit with the state of Florida. And and that that allows it, it's it's almost like an invitation for an inspector to come knocking on the door, and uh, and so I I want to know that if the and they won't call you ahead of time they'll just knock on the door and say I'm out in the driveway you know, and I'll just say All right come on in you know. Yeah, you know, I don't have to scramble to put water dishes in, or I don't have to scramble to do something it's it's what you see is what you get all the time yeah that's a an aspect that some of us aren't as familiar with florida has a little more uh detailed laws as far as what you can keep how you keep it and, and being available for inspection that's something i wouldn't have to be worried about here uh keeping egyptian tortoises i don't think so at least uh, no it's 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 just a class three in general it doesn't matter what species. Well, I guess whatever you have listed on your class three, but um, just the way the, the the with all the nonsense going on in Florida lately, you just have to be prepared. And and if you just do it right ahead of time, then then it's a non-issue. What's really interesting, Ralph, about our division of wildlife here in Ohio. They pretty early on made the decision, we do not want to be involved in the regulation of exotic animals. Um, and so Man, that's a big difference. You have no difference. idea how lucky you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, now the Department of Agriculture, uh, they do regulate exotic animals, so-called dangerous animals. But... Um, unless you have a, a constrictor over 10 feet, a venomous snake, um, you, you're not really going to have to get a permit as long as you keep exotic pets. Well, you don't have to as long as you don't sell or, or display. Okay. You, know, it's, you don't have to do it. And, and, and I'm sure there's thousands of people out there that have a collection of something that nobody knows about which is fine as long as it's a private collection and 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 you're content you know you're not on the on the radar so to speak that's that's great yeah um but i felt with the club with my position with the with the tampa bay turtle and tortoise society i i needed to be up front you know i had to be i had to be out there with everything because you know trying to set an example i guess maybe no but that's okay it's all good uh, i don't have any problems if they were to knock on the door here right now i here you know see what i got fine go for it what, i'm in the what, same boat oh sorry go ahead Tom. well what i just what i wanted to create a visual since i've been there right but you know ralph 
keeps his Egyptians separately. And, and that's really important, I think, to everything he does with the husbandry and the breeding. And, you know, last TTPG, Ralph told me that Jeremy Thompson visited. And, and I think Ralph really influenced Jeremy on how he keeps Conexus individually. And, the, and then I also do it, too. So um, Ralph has been really successful with that. And that has spread to others. Um, but, you know, I love when you go in, you know, uh, what an officer would see is lots of individually kept tortoises. Very neat, very clean, very organized. Yeah, all my, all my adults are, are kept as individuals, every single one of them. And, and my, my theory there, and it's something I just kind of stumbled upon as the years went on. Um, remember you had the comment about the pancake that bred a little too early, you know? Well, I mean, Egyptian males, they get to be three years old. I mean, they're not even three inches long, weigh 90 grams and they're, they're, they're savage little buggers, you know? <laughs> and, 90 and, uh, grams. 90. Gosh. Yeah. And, and, um, and so I had a, I had a separate them and, and, uh, cause I didn't want them breeding yet. Cause the females weren't big enough. And then I realized, wait a minute, I had two males and they were from a whole different bloodline. I saw, I need to keep him separate from this one. And, and that's how this whole thing started would, would keep an animals as individuals. And then, then the other pluses were, if you walk into a into your collection room, however it's set up, and you see a big old glob of green stuff that shouldn't have come out of your animal, and it's in the you know, and it's like, uh oh, what the hell is this? Well, if you have six animals together, number one, which one did it come out of, and you have to assume that all of them are infected because they're all living together. So now you've got multiple problems. And, and if I keep, by keeping all mine separate, I could focus just on that one animal and, and not worry about anything affecting the rest of the group. Egyptian tortoises are notorious for stressing out because they're little bitty things, especially males. Uh, by keeping them separate, they just kind of motor around on their own, kind of chill out a little bit. Uh, you put them in with another male, especially, they'll kill each other. And then if you put them in with a female constantly, he'll he'll wear himself out. He'll try and hump the thing to death. I mean, they're, they're nuts. Good, healthy ones, you know. But these animals are solitary by nature, right? So, I mean, you're. Yeah, sure. It's, yeah. You're, you're giving them just exactly what they need. Like you're That's just following it. natural history and, and you're applying that. So, which yep. is, should be our mantra for keeping reptiles. I think so. I'm a big advocate of it. It has worked for me. Um, I've had other, I, I know some people in the Egyptian world that helped me immensely. And, and they just swear by what I'm doing. They said they've never, they, they wish they had to come up with the idea themselves instead of you know putting four or five of them in a tub um, because of the success rate 
So now, Ralph, I'm thinking of, um, you know, Egyptian tortoises are are pretty attractive for a lot of reasons to even potentially a new pet owner, a new person who wants to get in. They're they're small. Uh, you don't have to give them a lot of space. You know, uh, they do have a, a bit of a price tag, but for a lot of people, that's not a barrier. For some people, it is. But um, do they really make good first turtle or tortoise pets? And what are some of the the difficulties that you have found maintaining them? Well, the number one is they're incredibly small. So a, a three-month-old hatchling weighs maybe 15, 18 grams, three months old. When they're hatched, they weigh five or six grams, you know? So, <laughs> you know, the egg is about as big as a robin's egg, you know, or something like that. And so you could put a, a hatchling on a, on a nickel, you know? Uh, that's how small they are. So they're real easy to dry out. They dehydrate in, a, in an instant. Um, uh, they're real easy to get drafty, you know, get cold and, and get a, a respiratory infection. I mean, they're susceptible to everything just because they're so incredibly small. Once they get to be about three months old and they start to put on a little size and weight, then they become a little bit more, more durable. Uh, but still, I can't convince people, and this is where I get into challenges with people, they want to buy that 20-gallon long aquarium, which is physically, it's big enough for a hatchling. But it's it, that glass aquarium doesn't breathe at all. Inevitably, they put this lamp on top of it with a 100-watt bulb, so it's about 150 degrees inside this aquarium, and the thing dies, you know? And, and I can't seem to convince people to not do that kind of stuff. And it happened. And I asked, that's what I, I talked to people on the phone. You're interested in buying it. Tell me what your background is. What is your experience? You know, help me out here. And 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 I, some people get all mad. Well, I think I am an idiot. Well, based on that, yeah. <laughs> you know, on that comment. Yeah. And I don't care anymore. You know, get mad at me. I just don't sell them to them. Right. Now, I don't know how we get past this, but people treat a land tortoise like a lizard and try to set a nice hot bulb up. And tortoises don't sit out in the sun all afternoon like a lizard would. So I can, you know, they're from the desert. You would think this Egyptian tortoise should need a hot bulb all the time. What? They might need that for 10 minutes a day and then they go yep, back and yep, hide. Yeah. And that's actually their life is. In the wild, you know, they um, they come out first thing in the morning, and 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 they look for well, where they're from is on the on the coast of the Mediterranean. Israel, not not so much Israel, but Egypt and and into Libya, and they're right on the coast. All right, they're not found throughout Egypt and Libya. They're only found on the coastal regions that were on the Mediterranean Sea, uh, inland maybe I don't know. 30, 40 miles, maybe maximum, if that. They usually mark it in kilometers. So 50 kilometers is about 30 miles, give or take a few. Uh, and and uh, the, that moisture comes off of the Mediterranean Sea inland. So in the morning, everything's covered with dew. 
and the humidity is probably pretty high. That's, that's the source of water for the Egyptian tortoise. After, after about nine or 10 o'clock in the morning, when it burns off, they're hiding. That's it. They're, they're done for the day. You won't see them for the rest of the day until the sun starts to go down. So like I said, Tom, you know, they're not out in that, that heat. They're not out there sitting under that 75 watt bulb, so to speak. And that makes a lot of sense. Cause if you think about it, I mean, as a small tortoise, I mean, you're talking about a 90 gram, 90 gram, um, let's call them excited male already. Yeah. And those things are highly, like you just mentioned, highly susceptible to dehydration, but they're also highly susceptible to predation. The Big more time. time you spend out there basking, the more you're out there. And I think that's what a lot of these tortoises do is they wait. They might go out there for, like Tom said, 10 minutes is probably even a long time for a tortoise. They get that hot. They might have a 140 degree sun, but they're sitting in it for seven minutes and then they're spending the rest of the day hidden yeah. away. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they're trying to avoid spaces where they put themselves, where they make themselves yeah. vulnerable. Yeah. They'll crawl um, under a bush or something like that and scratch a little, little hole or crawl down to maybe a little, you know, mouse hole or something like that. Anything to keep themselves cool and humid. For those listening, just think of that statement. A tortoise crawled down a mouse hole. Yes. Yeah. Hilarious. I mean, the size of these things is just killing me. Hatchlings <laughs> are just, they're incredibly small. And people think of Herman's tortoises and Redfoot tortoises and, 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 you know, and they're cute when they hatch out, right? But they already weigh 35 grams the day they hatch. And it takes an Egyptian tortoise a year to get that big. <laughs> you got to be patient. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and you mentioned that you missed your tortoises every morning. Sorry, Tom, yep. I may be uh, monopolizing questions here. Um, but I think that's one of those things um, that I've heard two sides of the coin. I've heard a lot of people afraid to miss some of their tortoises. Like there's a lot of old school herpers like, don't miss your tortoises. And I'm a, everything I have here gets misted. Like I just, I love it. It's one of the things my kids love to do and I involve them in it. Um, so I'm glad to hear that you are having such success and that you miss these tortoises. Have you, is that resonate with either of you? Have you guys heard that from, from maybe some more old school herpers or kind of dispel the myth that you shouldn't miss your animals? No, I'm, you know, I'm, you didn't say a downpour, yeah. but yes. I mean, hingebacks are so um, responding to precipitation. I mean, they come out and explore when it starts to rain, when I have my animals outside. I mean, they love it. That's what gets them going. So I've never heard anybody mention that. Don't miss your tortoise. Ralph, I've I've heard of you know desert species. They need to be kept dry, 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 dry. Um, and and while I won't argue that the Egyptian prefers a drier environment, uh, they do have needs. And in the morning, they need that that moisture. Uh, they don't have puddles to drink in, and everything has to have water. You know, everything needs some kind of moisture. That's the way it is. Uh, so they get theirs from from droplets on on plants and that that's where the misting part comes in but it's only in the morning because then it has to dry out you can't allow that substrate to stay wet and damp uh, but then that just leads to cold chills and respiratory issues Ralph follow up to that now 
I've heard recently a lot of people talk about how tortoises can drink through their nose and their nostrils. Okay. Have you ever seen an Egyptian tortoise like put their little nose up to a bead of condensation and like drink that? I mean, I'm just totally speculating. I'll tell you that to watch them drink off a droplet, that's exactly what they do. Now, are they sucking it in through their nose or their mouth? I don't know. I can't. I can't say for certain that they intake that water through their nostrils, but they do. They just, it looks like they're poking at it. It literally looks like they're poking at a leaf. And, and in fact, that's how they, they uh, obtain their moisture. So Ralph, I, I, I was listening to some of your previous interviews and other podcasts and stuff. And I definitely noticed that you keep most of your uh, Egyptian tortoises on crushed coral which is a lot of calcium carbonate. Correct me from or oyster shell, maybe. Is that what I heard? But It's crushed coral. Yeah, you're, you're right. Yep. So it's a source of calcium carbonate that they can munch on. I provide cuddle bone for pretty much any of my tortoises available at all time. How deep do you keep that substrate? Is that like a key component of making sure um, that you that it doesn't soak in and get too wet? Or Yeah, it's, a, it's approximately two inches deep. Um, they are not burrowers per se you know they don't dig holes they'll scratch in a corner they maybe try to push under a stone or something like that but they don't dig holes in it usually Um, and I do that uh, once again one of the old school guys that have been raising these things for 35 40 years that's that's what they started with and it just worked so good that I just kind of adopted it. Um, I've tried to vary it over the years, you know, adding some sand components and dirt components and whatever. But nothing seems to beat this. It, it dries out. It absorbs moisture. Um, it is calcium, so they can munch on it. They can ingest little pieces of it. Um, if you do an x-ray, Sometimes you'll see little tiny particles of it in their uh, GI system, uh, but typically it gets past, you know. Uh, you have to be careful, obviously. Uh, I feed them on a plate. I use paper plates instead of just throwing food in the enclosure. You know, you throw wet food in there and it's gonna, everything's gonna stick to it, especially sand. I'm not going to argue against the pros and cons of sand because everybody has an opinion. Sand is probably the number one component in their natural environment, but they're not eating wet stuff off of sand. They're they're picking things off of low-hanging bushes. I think that's a good point to make. Um, as I argued earlier for you know following the natural history of animals and accommodating that, there's also, you got to keep in mind that even though you're trying to replicate it, they are not in their natural habitat while you're keeping them, um, yeah. you know, yeah. in, in a, in, in a care setting. So yeah. you have to consider those, those aspects. Yeah. I, that's what I, you know, the best thing I learned uh, is studying the weather patterns, become like an amateur weatherman, uh, study the weather patterns in their home range uh there's a couple of good sites or go to vacation sites you know you want to take a vacation to alexandria virginia i mean not virginia alexandria egypt um study the weather and and 
that'll give you a good indicator of, of what you're dealing with as far as raising the animal. You'd be amazed that the, the, the weather patterns are crazy in some of these countries. Gets down into the 30s, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm just like, really? <laughs> you know? I think people will be very, very shocked to see some of the weather patterns, temperatures, um, yeah. when you really took a dive into it. Honestly, there's I've been shocked um, just looking into Madagascan stuff. So, yeah, I have yeah. a I have a lot of Madagascar stuff here. So uh, I have a huge presence with uh, Pixis, too. I don't know if you were aware of that. Yeah, I remember hearing you kept Pixis. Um, yeah. You keep both the uh, arachnoides, arachnoides, and the Brygui, and a few Planticata. And a few, jeez. Yeah, I'm definitely going to give you a shout when I'm in uh, when I'm in the neighborhood. <laughs> so, when, when I went to to Ralph's place, I thought I was going to see Egyptians. I think I thought he had some Pixis, but I was like, "Whoa, Ralph, Pixis too!" <laughs> and I got to be there at a really cool time in your Pixis journey. Did you see him? Yeah. Uh, I was wondering about that. Yeah. Yeah. Do tell. Do tell. Share. Well, I had some bright goo I hatch out. I hatched some bright goo I first ever, you know. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. See, I had done a little bit of research and some of the interviews I was listening to. Um, one of the last ones was you were just now getting to the point where they were laying eggs. So it's awesome to hear that you hatched them out because that's... That's not an easy task for Pixis. No, no. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen this year, but I have so far 22 Pixis eggs this year. Gosh, they're <laughs> like chickens for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I did. I mean, I don't. Other than, you know, I started 10 or 12 years ago, and and these are animals that I raised up from hatchlings that i acquired years ago i'd get one here and i'd get one there i'd trade a couple of egyptians you know for for one pixis or something like that whatever i thought and um and it's taken me forever ever literally raising them up 10 some odd years well i'd say now they're starting to now they're starting to produce eggs i can just get them all a hatch that's a whole nother <laughs> It's a little, yeah. Diapause is a tricky thing on the, uh, yeah, I don't want to go. I can go down a rabbit hole with diapause as I was reading up on all kinds of different stuff. Um, but yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm super jealous and probably most people are who like turtles and tortoises. But I think you make another great point here of persistence is very important to reptile keeping and especially important uh, with turtles and tortoises. I'm a real I'm a real advocate for um, focusing on one or two uh, I call it species taxa whatever you know uh, I don't have 15 different types here I just have I have the climani and I have pixis and 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 that's what I focus on and uh, I have a couple of other oddball things outside, but they're more rescues than anything else. And I keep them outside, you know, and just throw them a bone once in a while because I can. But I just, I just focus on what I have here. I have the luxury of being retired. I've been retired a number of years. So 
this is my day job, you know. Uh, I, I'm, I'm out here all the time, probably too much time, but that's okay. I don't, I don't play golf or, or, or any of that ridiculous stuff. You know, this is what I do. Definitely and, not uh, too much time. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's Zen. That's your, that's your piece. This is um, it. You know, this is my, this is my little world right here. I, I, I'm very, very serious about it. I put a lot of effort into it. And and I'm to the point now where I'm trying to share that with others. I, I get a real kick out of that. I'm enjoying that. Uh, it's it's like I mentioned earlier. It can be taxing at times trying to separate the the players from the non-players. And I hate to be that way, but but I also don't like being taken advantage of. So especially at the expense of the animal. Mm-hmm. Especially one as rare with uh, as these guys are. Like, how do you feel the the state of Egyptians are in the private sector? I mean, I, I can't think of a better person to ask. I think overall it's not bad. We did a when I say we, um, uh, Anthony and myself, when the when the ESA proposal first came out, uh, we tried to reach out. Well, first off, we had to respond to it. There was a, on the federal register, there was a, a comment, comment period where you could respond to that. Now that's, that's over a year ago already. And so Anthony and I reached out to as many different uh, breeders, collectors, if you will, that we, we could come up with and um, to see how many hatchlings were actually being produced per year in this country. And um, it was amazing. The number is, is kind of small. Uh, in three year period, we can document 503 hatchlings. Now that sounds like a lot, but that's the whole country. That's, that's the whole of the United States, you know? And 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 so that's what, you know, six per state, continental USA, you know. Um, it is I'll a lot, though, Ralph. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Ryan, maybe compare that with a, the AZA. AZA versus three. Yeah. They're, so that. I, it, it, it's a they're they're the same, but a little different. Right. Um the AZA, there's there's currently 90 animals, the last time I checked, in the stud book. Um, and all of them come from a base of 30 founders, of which 17 are still alive. Uh, but I believe, yeah, in the last year or something, it, it's, very, it's very small. It's like three animals. However, yes. however, they are only suggesting they breed groups that have genetic um, strength. Um, we, we will not I say we, I don't have any, and I'm not a stud book keeper for Egyptians. I'm trying to, I, I ride both. I'm a big time advocate for private hobby, and I'm also a big advocate for, for zoological work. But there's different goals, and sometimes it's frustrating because I think zoos could produce a lot of, of things like Egyptian tortoises, radiated tortoises, but we have to be cognizant of space. You don't, because, oh, yeah. you know, when, when you're trying to keep genetic diversity, these, these tortoises live a long time. 
and yep. space is a limiting factor. And if you produce genetically non-relevant tortoises, then that's 50, 60 years potentially that you have to make space for an animal that's never going to be, um, quote, zoologically relevant, um, at least in that capacity. So, but it also just highlights the importance of keeping these animals uh, in private hands and doing well and successfully reproducing them. Um, do you so anyways yeah that's kind of like the background for for zoo stuff so put in perspective people should we should be proud of what we're doing as the private hobby because 500 that's why you saw maybe my face when you said 503 it's like whoa you know that's 500 more yeah yeah <laughs> you know yeah. than zoos are and and that is good for the preservation of that species because in the private hobby, that's what I I I want to see preservation um, and having genetic lines that are strengthening. They like you maintain all those lines. I think that's icing on the cake. Um, but yeah, as I go down that road, so I think it's 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 incredible. Um, so I know out with that, go ahead out of that five hundred, I probably have delivered one hundred and seventy five of them. <laughs> So I think yeah. what's important to note about that is like small tortoises. Now you've been doing this a long time, but there's a fairly high mortality rate with tortoises and in general, um, because they are so susceptible to, to loss. So maybe you produce 175 and you keep 175, like you hatch 175 and you have 175, but of those 500, you know, two or 3% at least may just perish and, and they're not available anyways yeah, that's a different yeah. line but yeah. uh, i think what's also interesting is how how in the aza they have median life expectancy which they calculate as half the animals live younger than this or die before this and half the animals live above this and it's extremely low for egyptian tortoises that number is 12 years old for males and or 12 years old for yeah males and 14 for females um which is not a life expectancy it's a median life median life expectancy but how old are some of the ones that you have? Uh, at, at present, my oldest specimens are probably 15. Um, because Still going strong? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, because I started, I started with hatchlings. And uh, now I've had, I, I, I know some people that have founder animals. And, and, and I actually have had a couple of those founder animals here uh, at various times to, because they had stopped producing. And so we said, well, let's try and change the environment. Maybe it needs a new environment or, or it's too old. We don't know. Nobody knew the, the answer to that. So I had a couple of these founder animals that were probably 40 years old. Uh, females. I had two founder females here, and um, uh, and and in in my setup here, the best I could do was to get a few eggs produced, but the the shell was so thin that they would they would uh, they would break. And and so we came to the conclusion that at like thirty five years of age, approximately, the animal just can't produce enough calcium to to have viable eggs and so they just stopped i probably put it in a position where it really didn't need to be bred you know 
there mm -hmm. was an aggressive male. Um, in retrospect, I probably should not have done that, but we didn't know. But now we do. You know, we, it was kind of a trial by error. So, so, you know, the 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 general consensus is now that once they hit about thirty, that's about the end of the line as far as being productive. Now, how long will they live? couple of them are 45 years old that I know of for sure. So that that's funny because it's, it's now these are females. Males typically don't go that far, but I mean, 25 easy for a male. Yeah. All right. That's quite a bit for a little tiny guy. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about Egyptian tour. I know we're very focused. I love Pixis too. That could be another conversation sometime for sure. Yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> what you've been in the game with Egyptians for quite a bit now. What yeah. does success look like to you in the hobby with Egyptian tortoises in the next, let's just say 10 to 15 years? Well, Everything right now is is kind of dependent upon the outcome of this ESA proposal. Okay, um, it's not so much listing them listing them as under ESA, but they want to um, limit the amount of interstate commerce and and. Uh, for why I don't know. I don't know why they want to do that. I mean, I don't understand the significance of restricting the sale of 150 or so hatchlings per year in the entire United States. What is that going to prove under any circumstances? What What are you going to gain or protect? Um, that is a potential problem for the species as a whole. Somebody like me, I know enough people and I've been doing this long enough that I probably will just donate some animals to different keepers around the country. Uh, like within the TTPG, I'm a big advocate of their philosophy of, of, of keeping breeding groups alive within a network. I'm, I'm a big advocate of that. And so, uh, you know, I kind of need to put my money where my mouth is on that. And I have, you know, I've distributed probably a dozen hatchlings already for free with the, with the knowledge or the hope that I'm laying the groundwork for more breeding colonies down the road that other people that have the same philosophy. So I think the species could survive, but it would make life a whole lot easier if they would just table that ESA thing, which is under the circumstances in which they have it written, it's ludicrous, just ludicrous. It, it, it makes no sense at all. Kudos to you first for paying it forward. I think that's that's an awesome thing. Uh, and secondly, for people who don't know, once what's an animal is listed on the endangered species act in the united states all interstate commerce is restricted um, you can gift animals but pretty much you're only selling animals 
um, within the state. It's the same thing right now with like radiated tortoises. Yeah, you have to yep. buy them in state. And yep. um, with radiated tortoises, and I don't want to get down it too long, but radiated tortoises are, you know, smuggled quite frequently for mostly yep. for bush meat, honestly, not the pet trade, but it happens, and that all that can almost make sense. But I mean, there's not many Egyptian tortoises in their native space anymore. Um, the bulk of them are in private hands, either in the private hands or in zoological facilities. So restricting that movement um, it can it may prove counterintuitive. So I, on this particular species, especially, I agree. And I hope they keep it tabled for a little bit until they get enough data to make sure that it's actually going to be helpful. Yeah. And, and you know, they print. And I have read this. I, I've, this has consumed me for the last year. So I have I have immersed myself into into all the regulations and and uh, trying to understand it, um, and without throwing stones at at organizations or people. But the problem with the Egyptian tortoise is not in the United States. You know, maybe years ago we were a, a small party of it as far as acquiring animals, but back then it was legal. Okay, so so the Egypt, Egypt released them. You know, we didn't go over there and, and steal them. They 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 shipped them over here, boxes, and um, and now they don't have any. You know, and they they, uh, I mean, it's the same old story: habitat destruction. You know, that area I was telling you about on the Mediterranean coast—that's prime vacation land. That's you know, that's like the Florida coast. You know, it's it's hotels and marinas and and then all the infrastructure to support all that. What grazing land was left? There's highways and and factories and 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 cattle. Uh, you know, a, a little Egyptian tortoise can't compete with a cow. You know, over a clump of grass, um, and so they just disappeared. And and then there's there's still poaching goes on. Uh, you know, the laws over there are a little bit kind of lax for some reason. So that's where the problem lies. The problem isn't here. We're trying to preserve them. But it doesn't seem to want to work that way. <laughs> you know, the habitat degradation and fragmentation doesn't line up very well for those guys. Because no, they are no. so coastal. And that is the coastal Mediterranean, like you just said, is absolutely prime. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're not found anywhere but there. So it kind of it really stinks for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and being so small, you know, they're not in a position to compete. They can't think, you know, a little hatchling sticks his head out from under a plant. Bango, a bird gets them. Um, and, and they only lay two eggs at a time. So, uh, you know, there, there's half the population or half that future population gone right there. Yeah, it's a it's a downward spiral. So. Uh, a lot of these things, the, the the little Egyptian is is a classic example. We need to we need to uh, uh, keep the species going in captivity properly. You know, it, it has to be managed. I, I'll be the first one to admit to that. It, it, it needs to be managed properly. And they need to be housed properly. They need to be distributed properly. But we can do it. Absolutely. When you are investing like that, which is not so often the case in in our in our hobby. 
you open yourself up to maybe utilizing more um, resources like with Asia turtles and tortoises are probably, in my opinion, working in, in zoos for 15 years now. They are some of the most cooperative groups of people to work with um, of any of any of the reptiles, for sure. I see way more people, private hobbyists being able to participate in some way with zoological institutions than with anything else. I'm not saying it's prevalent, but it's definitely more so than anything. And, and that's part of the reason why they like to work with people is seeing someone put in like number one, the dedication, the time, but also managing them correctly. Um, so I think setting ourselves up to maybe add founders to private hobby and then have some of our founders go, I say our, I don't have any Egyptian tortoises, but have our founders go and help in zoological institutions is important. Um, I'm I'm a big advocate of that also. Uh, knock on wood, I know a few other individuals who work in the, the zoological industry and um and, and and I've actually supplied some animals to them privately for their own private collection. Um, there seems to be a little bit of a barrier for some reason. Um, like I reached out to the stud book coordinator, uh, the AZA stud book coordinator for, it used to be Danielle, I don't know if it still is. It is. And, um, and, and I, you know, initially we had, and I tried to be, you know, uh, tried to be polite, and this is what I'm looking to do, and and it was it was a dead end. You know, it just went nowhere, and it's like, oh come on, man, I'm just I'm just trying to work together here. You know, it's unfortunate. And I, yeah, I think that those opportunities are there, right? And I think that's one thing we can do here, uh, as Ryan and I continue working together and working with private keepers, is is matching collections up um you know i'm working on a, a private private partnership right now with radiateds uh, we're not an aza organization but we're going to try to get radiateds matched up at a uh, major institution in northeast ohio so it's there it's just it's ryan what i see it's the zoo has to want it bad enough and if if they don't then it's kind of a meh, but if the private sector has animals that they really want, I've seen a lot of chameleons from private breeders go to zoos recently, um, then then it, it works. You're absolutely right. They have to want it. And that changes from not only person to person, but from zoological institution to zoological, yeah, from zoo to zoo. Yeah, That will change as well as from person to person. Yeah. So yeah. there's very little consistency on that end. And also one thing I've noticed is that zoos will begin, if they haven't already, working with private individuals um, when they need to, because, you know, there are, whether it's through importers or people who are captively producing things, one, because we don't necessarily want to do the dirty work. Um, it's a lot easier for someone else to do all of that than go out and get yourself a collected population of some species when someone else is already doing it. And also... Um, to add more blood to your population, like I said, there were 30 founders for Egyptians, 17 are still alive. They're kind of long lived, but not as long lived as other tortoises. There's gonna have to be some collaboration if you maintain that genetic diversity as long as you want. 
So it's it's just gonna happen. But you're right; barriers do exist. I think I heard on a one. I heard you mention on a on a different program that um, you wanted to come. Someone wanted to send you wanted to see a setup for an Egyptian tortoise to help somebody out who was having a little problem with them in a zoo, and they weren't allowed to send you a photograph. Yeah, yeah, and that is that's I again fifteen years. That's insane yeah. to me. I don't know yeah. where that was. That is not always the case, but those are true barriers. I believe that person was like, yeah, they were probably the boss was like, no, you can't do that. That's proprietary and, information. Yeah, and, we can't uh, have it leaked. Yeah, I, again, we don't dare mention any names, but uh, uh, and I have a good rapport with that individual to this very day, and 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 we talk behind the scenes, if you will, you know, to try and help them out. But yeah, I made a comment. I said it would help if I could see what you're doing. And that's what he said. I, I'm sorry, but I can't send you any pictures because it's policy, you know? Yeah, at least. Yeah, said, that's, okay. tough. <laughs> that's tough to swallow. And, and, yeah. and the, the, the other big difference, and this was brought up at TTPG again, is that as a keeper, as a reptile keeper, you only have so much space. You can only do so much with that one particular animal or species. Um, when a private keeper focuses on a taxa, they often can do so much more than even a zoo. And I think that's really, really important to remember. I would agree with that. And, and you know, I make a point of going to as many zoos as possible and behind the scenes stuff. and. And I don't know of any that has 15 adult Clemeni, you know, uh, you know, they might have two on display and maybe two in the back, uh, but that's it. And I'm sure it's a case of economics and space and all of that. I mean, I get all that part of it. Yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah. Nobody does that. And Tom, that's also a great point. And I strongly agree. As someone who has worked in several different places, um, you know, I only have so much time and depending on where I was working, I may manage 10 to 15 different species or 30 to 40 different species, not just yeah. of turtles and tortoises, but, you know, monitor lizards, venomous snakes. So yeah. you can't yeah. specialize. And honestly, yeah. you have some of the, a lot of the greater achievements in husbandry have come from the private hobby from individuals who have that individual passion because you definitely if you're going to focus on one or two species you definitely have that passion um and that dedication to notice those intricate little signs that need to be passed along so i think that was such a great point tom yeah it's a real real good point and and i think that's what's contributed to my success with them is that i'm here you know the first thing in the morning i get my cup of coffee and come out here and good morning guys you know and and uh and in after a while you get to know if they're not all under the heat lamps oh wait a minute what's going on something something's not right you know or uh the little things like that and and that's how you learn about them yep you have way more time to observe like you just said which um everyone should really yeah. take a little more time to observe their animals if you can my uh my Plants and trees, uh, they don't move a lot, but um, I have 17,000 taxa that I'm responsible for at work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now you're just bragging. Yeah, really. But they don't, but they don't yeah, have shells. No, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> I, I couldn't even compute that high. <laughs> I have a lot of help. 
Uh, I want to transition a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, sure. To the Tampa Bay Turtle and Tortoise Society Incorporated. You okay. founded that, if I read that right? Or you helped That's found correct. it? Or? Yes. What was it like founding that? And what have been some of the challenges and rewards of, of kind of... Um, I'll give you a, a little quick history. There was a, an organization in Central Florida called the Florida Turtle and Tortoise Club. Or the Turtle and Tortoise Club of Florida, something like that. Um, they were around for a long time, based in, in Orlando area. And, and we used to drive to their monthly meetings. And it was like a two-hour trip one way. And it was a weeknight. So I said, man, this, this is getting old. And then it was, I don't want to talk smack about them, but it just, you know, you drive two hours, you spend an hour there and two hours back. And I said, this is kind of getting old. So, so I said to these guys, how about, how about we create a, um, like a sub entity of, of, of your club in, in the Tampa Bay area. I had a facility. I had, I had all that lined up free. Okay. So, so what we did is we formed the, the Clearwater Turtle and Tortoise Club, but it was, uh, the, the corporation was the, the, the Florida Turtle and Tortoise Club, right? We were just a sub entity of it. And that worked okay for a few months. And then right away, uh, there was some questions about, I, I created an auction and I did very well. Well, they wanted me to split the money with them. I thought, oh, wait a minute. You know, I do all the work and you want the money. So, so I, I said, all right. I, I said to the group, um, stand in front of the group. And I said, I have an idea. And I said, how about we just create our own entity? And, and I'll do all the, the, the grunt work, you know, but I need the support of you, the people, you're the members, you know? And, and then we, we came up with a few different names and then we decided on the, the Tampa Bay Turtle and Tortoise Society, Inc. And so I did it. And I, 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 I filed the corporation papers. Um, and, um, and then I went one step further and I, I got us listed as a 501c3. And, um, and off we went. And for a number of years, it was awesome. It was great. We had no, we had no problems. We, were, we had a good membership. And then unfortunately, COVID came along. And COVID kind of, well, you know, I don't have to preach to you about COVID, all right? Uh, the park shut down, our meeting place shut down, everything shut down. And then I tried to keep it going via Zoom, just like I am right now. I set up, I got a Zoom account and I'd sit here and we'd have, but either I'm lousy at it or people weren't interested in it or priorities or whatever. It just, it, it, we didn't have a real strong following on Zoom. And so I kind of, I kind of shut, I didn't shut it down, but I just put it to rest for a while. It's still in existence. It's still a viable organization. We still have a, uh, a, an account. We have everything in place. 
We just haven't been doing anything with it in the last few months. Just kind of waiting for the opportunity. I tried to get somebody to take over. This is the big problem with any organization. And, and it doesn't matter whether it's a turtle club or what. If, if you don't do it yourself, <laughs> it doesn't get done, you know? It's just always the way it is. And so I said, does anybody want to be the president or be the treasurer or be the, or something, anything? I don't care. If you have an idea, take it and run with it, you know? Uh, make me look like a fool. I don't care as long as the club survives and nobody would do it. So I said, all right. So yeah, the actual so. putting it together was, was kind of easy. Uh, Florida has, I mean, it's easy to just go online and, 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 and incorporate. That's not really that difficult. And, um, you know, they send you all the articles and all that. And, um, and you register, doesn't cost a whole lot. And then I did the 501c3 that you know, was a little bit more involved, but it wasn't the end of the line. So did that opened any other avenues for you being a, a nonprofit? For a while, for a while, it was awesome. Just to give you an idea, um, you know, we needed we needed money. Any organization needs money. I think our dues were twenty bucks a year. I had somebody that did a newsletter every month. Um, she did a fabulous job. She did it for years. And there's another thing. You know, she begged people to submit stuff. Uh, we had a classified section. You know, just give it to me. She said, just any information. And of course, nobody does. Uh, I wrote an article for every month, I call it Ralph's Ramblings. And that's basically all I did is just talk turtle crap, you know, and, and what was going on in the world. Uh, but nobody else would do it. So, you know, you get frustrated. You get frustrated after a while. Um, but we would have this auction and and I reached out to all the big vendors, the Zoomids, the Zillas, the the Exoterras, Missouri, all them. And because I had all the documentation of a, of a legitimate organization, I cannot begin to tell you how generous they were with, 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 with stuff for our auction. It was amazing. I mean, we would do a couple of thousand dollars at, at an auction and selling stuff for, you know, pennies on the dollar, brand new stuff. It was, it was great. Awesome. Yeah. I was at, I was at Daytona one year and um, I'll, I'll mention Zilla and, and uh, I had, I had prearranged to pick up some stuff at Daytona for shipping. It was easier for them to just ship everything at one time to Daytona instead of shipping stuff here separately. I, you know, cost saver. All right. I get it. Yeah. And um so I talked to the rep at the show and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we got some some stuff for you in the back room there on on a, on on the pallet back there. I said, OK, so I walk back there and I said, all I see is one whole pallet wrapped in that plastic wrap. You know, it's about six feet high. And I said, I saw I look around. I said, I don't see anything. So I walked back and I said, all I see is just a pallet. Oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> the whole freaking pallet, you know. 
I had to figure out I couldn't get it home. You know, I had to break it up into pieces and load it in other people's cars. That's how generous they were. But I couldn't have done that if I wasn't legit, you know. And 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 then I had, you know, I write a nice thank you letter with our tax ID number and all that, you know, for them. Yeah, that's I, that's a, a perfect point to make. That was the positive. That was all yeah. the, the positive stuff. Um, I had different speakers. Um, uh, the TSA did a, uh, you know, Jordan Gray? Mm-hmm. TSA? I do. A few years back, he did a Southern tour. And, and he only had like four stops in the whole state of Florida. Well, we had donated monies to the to that radiated, uh, remember when all those radiators were oh, yeah. radiators were confiscated? We sent them a check for like a thousand bucks, you know, at our little club. So now, when it comes time to go on this tour, I just said, "Hey, Jordan," I said, "You know, why don't you stop by here?" And I I promoted it a little bit. I had a full house uh, in attendance, you know, I almost had a hundred people in the audience to hear him speak. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. Now it is hard to get a hundred people somewhere. <laughs> really? I mean, we had standing room only because I didn't know if, if these people knew who the hell Jordan Gray was or the TSA, you know, but I, I went to the local newspaper and, you know, and the, and the park that I'm associated with was also really good with helping me promote it. And they give me all this stuff for free. You know, That's a nice place. collaboration you've got there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we, I don't know what the future holds. Um, it's it's in existence. Everything is there. Um, I heard you guys mention something about a uh, like a TTPG East. Yeah, and and I had prior to COVID, I was working on something like that, Ooh. and Ooh. Um, but. I, I, I kind of just let it go away. I just thought this is a great, not great because I live right here, but we have a lot of stuff available in this area. Uh, no offense to Phoenix, but we're kind of running out of places to go that we haven't been <laughs> yeah, to already. Yeah, field trips. Yeah. Whereas here we have Zoo Tampa, which is an AZA facility that i am been in contact with. We have Bush Gardens. Um, we have the Florida Aquarium. These are all AZA facilities. And then just a, uh, it's about an hour and a half south is uh, Iguana Land, Thai Parks Place. Oh, yeah. um, and I'm a good friend of his, so I can go down there anytime. He would love to have a group of, you know, 100 turtle nerds come through there. Yeah, maybe so it's a possibilities. field trip. Maybe maybe huh? it's, maybe it's a field trip and no talks. Like the the TTPG Southeast field trip 2024. And we go to some of those places. No talks. Something like ju- that. Just just a just a meetup and a field trip. Uh that that would be awesome and and yeah. some social time, but man it would just be so cool to give people that live on the East Coast an opportunity to get together. Anybody in the East Coast can easily fly to Florida, often for very cheap. Um, let's keep talking, Ralph. Anthony is yeah. on board, too. Yeah, and I mean, again, I say Florida because it's in my backyard, you know? Make no mistake. 
but we just have so much to offer. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And I know, yes, you do. I know, I know other private collectors down here that that have collections that you'd crap yourself if you saw how much they had. <laughs> you know, acres of ponds, whatever kind of turtle you could dream of. Um, you know, Wayne Hill. Everybody knows Wayne Hill. Uh, he's got like a trillion turtles. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't need any extra reason to want to go to Florida. I would much rather be there right now. Yeah. We just broke 40. It's 41 and cloudy here. So I would be there right now. If someone had two turtles or no turtles, I'd still be there. I got so. to turn my fan on here. Hold on, because I'm starting to sweat. It's getting hot. Oh, here. my gosh. Rub it in. <laughs> I've just got some slides on and my toes uh, are like cold numb. Th 35 here, but I can see some blue sky. Which is rare. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's seventy six here in the room. Yeah, there you go. All right, I need to start looking at uh, some some Florida jobs. That's what. <laughs> All right, yeah, sir. I have to try and reach out to uh, again with the Egyptian deal. A couple of the facilities down here. Uh, to see if I can't put a couple on display or if they would be interested. Uh, I mean, yeah. I don't know if they would or not. I, I don't, I can't speak for them, but. but uh, it, it's, you know, so many zoos are place-based now, which is amazing and fantastic. And I love it. Right. So you have mm -hmm. your different eco lot, uh, eco regions that you're trying to uh, emulate. Not many people are working on the North African coast. Um, that's just not something you hear a lot about. So, yeah. um, but man, it's a neat spot. There's a lot of great animals there, tortoises. It would be cool. Yeah. I think the, I, I think it's, it's a good spot, uh, for some kind of a, a function, but. So we'll... Yeah. Well, let's, yeah, I, I, I want to go to Florida. I'm, uh, you know, just. I'm not I'm not coming down this year, Ralph, but plan it for 2024. I've had make, some real interesting people show up here and and, it, and I'm thrilled. I love it. As yeah. long as I know who it is and yeah, I know what yeah. their you know what their uh their motives are and yeah. all that. I'm I'm I and, love I mean, it. it. It would just be cool for us to plan like a three-day go to Ty Park's place, go to Tampa Zoo. Man, that just it would be all be awesome. Just yeah. an opportunity to connect as humans, um, just like you have on, on the West Coast. And yeah. I guess uh, we should apologize to TTPG for uh, <laughs> encroaching no. on stuff. But yeah. I, I, I firmly agree. I, I love the idea of no talks and just a field trip and, they, and then see how that goes. But the more opportunities people have to get together and kind of have a, you know, a, a short weekend vacation to just meet with people who are just as passionate about our shelled friends as we are is, is something I would look forward to every year. Especially I'm a, if it was a little cheaper to fly to Florida, to be honest. <laughs> I when when I was was writing up the rules and regulations, if you will, for the the Tampa Bay Turtle and Tortoise Society, I stole, I flat out stole the front page from the TTPG. <laughs> I mean, I, I and I don't hide it for a second because I believe in what they say, what their what their mantra is. I, I, I love the organization. 
Um, I mean, I think everything needs a little fine tuning from time to time, but that's that's not to be critical. Um, but I, I love the goals that they try and establish. I'm a big supporter of the team. Like I'm now a lifetime member. Um, I, I, I really believe in them. And, and, and I, would, I would not do anything without including them. That's for certain. They were instrumental too in, uh, in our, our response uh, on the federal register with the ESA proposal. You know, the TTPG is involved with that also. Ralph, you know, this might be a good time to just think forward real quick and wrap things up. But what is your expectation when that decision is going to be finalized from the Fish and Wildlife Service? Do you know, do you have any inside information there? I do not have any inside information. I will tell you that Per the rules, they were supposed to um, address it by November. They had a one-year, November 2022, which is just passed, right? It was supposed to have been addressed. The longer it goes unaddressed and the longer Washington is as dysfunctional as they are, um, the better off it'll be. In the list of priorities, this, you know, this sucker is way down at the bottom. It's way at the bottom of the list, all right? And the only reason it comes to light is because special interest groups push it. it this is, that's all it is. It's special interest groups have their own agenda. They're the ones that push it. Well, um, if if nobody listens to them and they just said, screw it, listen, we got more important things to do right now. Um, they won't let it go, but they'll just reevaluate their whole position and then try a different approach. So it could go on for years, literally. So no or news we is good get news. an announcement tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, you never know with them sometimes. Yeah, and it all depends on who's reading it, you know, and 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 what their thought process is. They're reading it and they say, this is stupid. This makes no sense. Let's put it back on the bottom. Or somebody's cousin or brother is, you know, in a, in a key position and has a few dollars and... Um, because money talks. Yeah, that's the sad part about it. So you, you just don't know. But the longer it goes with no, no uh, reconciliation at all, I, I think that's a good thing. And then and the reality is, if it gets enacted, the Endangered Species Act in itself won't mean anything. In this particular instance, the only thing that that would be, to me, damaging is the uh, interstate commerce aspect of it. And that's, I could still send things to different people. I just can't sell them. I mean, and you're right. And that would was, easily be the most damaging thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with ESA, you know, mm -hmm. in itself. 
It's just, it just shouldn't have to apply in this particular situation. Sometime, Ryan, I would like to do an episode where we take a deep dive on what CIDES is, what the different appendix mean, what ESA is, what they mean, so we can cl clarify kind of a lot of misconceptions over over the whole thing. In, in the yeah, 20 people sit down, you get 20 different responses. <laughs> yeah, so fortunately, you know, I spent 22 years as a uh, government employee, so I've I've dealt with it quite a bit in my life. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I have a, Better a very, you than very me. good friend of mine. Uh, he's, he's long since retired, but he he was uh, an inspector for the CDC. And 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 uh, he's the one that helps me helped me with some of the designs of, of how I did things here. Um, and because and, I asked him, I said, what are the government standards? If you were if you were to walk in here with your little notepad as an inspector, uh, you know, what would you look for? And and he said, now looking around here, he said, this is the model. He said, I would write this is the model that you should send out for other facilities to copy, which was kind of flattering. But um, I don't know where I was going with that. I lost my track. Well, I, I think where you're going is that, uh, you know, governments write laws. The executive branch is responsible for enforcing that those laws, but at the end of the day, it's one person going out making an, an inspection, interpreting those those rules and regulations, yeah, and yeah, it just yeah, depends yeah. who it really is uh, that day. And you know, I was one of those people, and I, I get it. We're we're yeah. we're people at the end of the day, and laws yep. are just ways for us to keep things organized and and working. They're not perfect. Yeah, remember what I was saying earlier about the FWC, uh, that an inspector could knock on the door here. Most of these field inspectors are, are they're the nicest guys in the world and women. I mean, they're great people. And, and uh, they could come in and say, oh boy, everything's perfect. Except that that water bowl is upside down. You know, well, it could have been a 10 minutes ago to tip the water bowl upside down. Now, most people would say, look at that, tip the water bowl upside down. But you always get that one. They'll say, oh, the water bowl's upside down. That's a violation. And that's where you get interpretation by an individual. So it can happen, I guess. I wouldn't doubt it. I think there are some people who are afraid to turn in something without a, without a mark on it. Yeah, it makes them look like yeah. they didn't look like no. I yeah, oh. yeah. You mean this is perfect? No, 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 no. That can't happen. <laughs> I, I think that's where I was going with my friend that worked for CDC. That he said I, I would challenge him to to come here. I thought, well, I don't want to do that, but yeah. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's not take that step. Hold on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man. Well, guys, I think um, this has been an awesome conversation. I thank you both for being here. Is there any parting words either of you would like to uh, leave our listeners after this, uh, after our meeting here? Go ahead, Tom. 
Ralph, thanks for joining us. Uh, you know, I think you've laid the groundwork for a lot of us, and, and I'm kind of like a, an F2 uh, keeper. You know, you taught Jeremy a lot in the single animal uh, per enclosure system, and then he taught me that, and I'm having success, you know, because of, of you and your uh, willingness to share that information. So thanks for being here, Ralph. Well, uh, um, uh, thank you for that. Uh... I remember it at uh, not this past year, but maybe the last year, uh, Jeremy did a presentation uh, at TTPG and, and about four times he said, I copied Ralph Till, I copied Ralph Till. I felt, you know, I, I was kind of slid down in the chair, you know, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, somebody's gonna throw a stone at me or something, you know, but, but, but really I was kind of flattered, you know? And if I could help somebody do something successful, that was the key. Then, then, then I'm happy. So uh, that's what I enjoy. Well, that's awesome. I can't thank you enough because, like you just said, sharing is important. That's one of the reasons I try to get this podcast off the ground. And I have Tom here with me, and um, we all have got to share to to kind of get it out there because we can't take it with you. So yeah, you can't take it with you. It's awesome what you're doing. Um, I wish I had the wherewithal to kind of do something like this, but I, I, I'd probably lose it. <laughs> so keep it up. Man. <laughs> Don't give me too much credit. It hasn't been too. Tom has been a, a a nice fire under under my backside to help hey, get this whatever it takes. Back you know, again, it, so. it's great that you two can collaborate on it. You know, it's it's what it takes. Awesome. Excellent. Well, guys, thank you for being here for another episode of Let's Talk Turtles. Um, Tom, have a wonderful rest of your day. Ralph, you might get a call or text from me in April when I'm back down in Florida. I'm gonna I'll leave the wife yeah, and kids sure. at, Let the, me know. at the condo and uh, I'll swing over. <laughs> All right, fellas, have a good day. All right, man. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>